Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 59 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Sturt Manning, a professor of classical archaeology at Cornell University. Dr. Manning's research interests center around Aegean prehistory, dendrochronology, dendroclimatology, and East Mediterranean prehistory. He has written or contributed to numerous publications, including his book, A Test of Time and A Test of Time Revisited, the Volcano of Thera, and the Chronology and History of the Aegean and East Mediterranean in the mid-2nd millennium BC. In this episode, we chatted about the benefits of Australia's interdisciplinary scholarship model, approaches to the study of climate archaeology and how they affect us today, and explored the timeline of traumatic climate disasters like the volcanic explosion on Santorini. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so, so much for joining me this evening. I'm super excited to get you on the podcast, and I wanted to start with a really easy question, or hopefully easy question, which is, where does your love of archaeology come from? When did you first discover that you wanted to study the ancient world and archaeology? I think probably I can blame my mother a little bit here. Um, she was very keen on literature generally, but historical literature. So that tended to get you being put on with works like Ivanhoe and things like this, which today count as dated and to the point of not even on syllabi usually. That's sort of something of a past interest, and I think that then led to um, picking to do some history, ancient history um, courses when I got to college, and then you decide this is really cool, and there's a sort of snowball trajectory phenomenon that happens at that point. Some opportunity then happens, and then you do that, but I think gradual tradition of looking backwards from, from her. Oh, that's so cool. And when you first started out, did you have an, any idea of what time period or what culture, or did you just kind of start with all of them? <laughs> well, um, I'm Australian by origin. Partly uh, got interested in some things in Australia and New Zealand, and partly got interested simply because of schooling and age and stage meant that doing old things typically meant some of that included Greeks and Romans. Today we might say 
it could include many other useful things, but it didn't certainly run experience I had. So that probably got me interested in, in those. And I remember reading Herodotus um, in translation um, fairly early on in high school. It was sort of thought to be a, a good thing to do if you were interested in history. And that got me very keen on, on I guess I'd say the classical world generally. So it could easily have gone in a different direction if one had read something else at that time. Nice. And when you were in school, were classes in archaeology easy and available, or did you have to go searching to find courses? Well, school as in high school, no, obviously. Uh, we didn't, that, that was a regular school as in um, university or college. So the Australian model that I did was more like the liberal arts model um, of some in the US, in which you don't enroll in a particular department. You more or less got to pick whatever you wanted to, but you had to construct a, a major somehow out of that. So I did get to pick many things that interested me, but that meant I did everything from doing a couple of courses in English through a couple of courses, classics type subjects, through other history, pre-history, et cetera. So that was a case of just picking and um, what you got interested in. And that then shaped maybe what I then applied to do for an honours thesis and then a master's. And you progressively narrow your choices, not necessarily deliberately, but one sort of tends to lead somewhat to another. And did you, I mean, once you started to be able to take these courses, did you know that this is what you wanted to definitively do for a career? Or did you ever waver at any point and say, well, maybe <laughs> I should do something else and this will be a hobby? Well, my parents were fairly convinced that I should be a lawyer simply because that was going to actually get um, employment, which I fully understand why parents think, think that type of way. So I suspect part of what my choices were, were the protest movement of, in fact, trying to um, do something I wanted to do. And, and I think like anybody in you know, the early 20s, as a rule, if you're lucky enough to come from a place that's not you know, in a war zone or otherwise really challenging, you aren't planning for the future. So no, I, I don't think I had any plan whatsoever for the future. And then I got lucky that I applied for a scholarship to do graduate work, which Again, that's sort of age and stage. You don't really appreciate how you know, difficult or rare these things are. You win that. So then you're a graduate student and um, you know, it goes on. And I guess I had a big turning point when you, you get to the point of towards the end of graduate school, are you going to get a job? If I hadn't got a job then in academia, I would have undoubtedly gone and done something completely different and, and, and had to either be practical or whatever. Got lucky and got one. And in a way, never really had to sit there and go, do I really want to do this? Um, the opportunity came along each time. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so curious because I saw your, your interests are very wide and varied. So how did you put it all together? I know a lot of people struggle choosing sort of just one thing to be interested in. Some of these things I'm quite familiar with in terms of the archaeology of either Anatolia or the Mediterranean or state formation. But I mean, I saw you're interested in like climate stuff and dendrology, like that's so cool, but I've not really gotten the opportunity to hear or talk to someone who studies that. Well, some of that's accidental. I mean, so when I was doing a master's at Macquarie University, I partly supported that by being a research assistant um, at University of Sydney, which is only a relatively short distance apart within the same big city. And that was in an anthropology department. So that exposed me to some different things. And so various times other influences have come along and 
gone off in a different direction. So some of the stuff on state formation and things undoubtedly came from that type of intersection of ancient history classics with people who were prehistorians and anthropologists and brackets, therefore, usually regard people in classics department with deep suspicion as to whether they're even, in fact, you know, engaged in a proper scholarly activity. Just as in classics departments, we have deep suspicion of people doing anthropology because they can't possibly be doing proper scholarship because, you know, it doesn't involve Greeks and Romans and so on. So I think I got a more mixed background. And that probably largely does reflect coming from Australia at my time because classics was a very, very small field in Australia at that time. And departments tended to consist of like, you know, three people and this type of thing. So they were often either merged with other things, like they were part of a sort of wider European languages or they were part of a bigger history thing. Whereas you come to the high elite level of sort of US model in research one type universities, there are these little wall barriers in which you know each department jealously defends their territory and it tends to separate themselves off from other people in many cases. So I think I benefit from the fact that I came from a place where survival was probably the number one um, issue for most of the people I worked with and they tended to reach out. We're very happy to collaborate and, and I've done that. I've never really been interested in just one thing. So obviously I should, that, that's probably just me and my mindset. You get passionately keen on various things, but then you do other things. And I mean, obviously I say it's a, it's a weakness and a strength. I think it's a strength because obviously trying to make yourself relevant to a whole range of topics does give some prospect of actually doing things that engage with both students, but also with people who actually want to fund your work and support it and so on. At the same point, Yes, it makes it more difficult because you're trying to pretend to be an expert at several things rather than just one thing. And inevitably, nobody can be an expert at everything. So you do end up constantly having to try and learn or relearn things. So I think that's exciting as long as it doesn't all collapse. I, I love what you said about how it's both a strength and a weakness to love so many things. I have several friends who went through grad programs and so I do have a few who've decided in the end that they would focus on one thing. So tragedy, just poetry. And I do have others who want to focus on a couple things. So my question for you as someone who luckily didn't have to sort of pick one and has been able to look at multiple interests at the same time, how do you manage to juggle all of it? Is it really, is it by request when, when sort of being asked to start teaching things or researching things or taking on projects um, because there are so many and you do have that very interdisciplinary training, which is amazing. I'm, I'm very pro interdisciplinary things. Does that force you to kind of do like mini deep dives back into each thing, depending on what's asked of you? I guess the answer is yes and yes, largely and no a little bit, because the one probably honest admission I should make immediately, of course, is I don't have very good training in any of these areas because that's the um, the nature of being more interdisciplinary and it's the nature of background. So you know, I didn't go to one of these elite schools where they teach you Greek and Latin um, when you're at school and by the time you're 16 or 18, you've already read everything and, and, and there you go. The classic sort of Oxford, Cambridge type of um, historical model. I didn't go to a university where they had an intense program where by joining you know, classics or a major in this, you did all of that. And by the time you finished after four years, you really were very well prepared and, and a top graduate school would have taken you immediately. 
So I suspect the obvious, I'd say as an undergraduate, I'm sure I would have failed to have qualified for almost any leading American graduate program because they would have said, oh, you don't have enough preparation in any of these particular things you want. So I was very lucky that reasons that I'll never know. University of Cambridge in the UK did decide to take me on and gave me a scholarship to come, even though I manifestly didn't have any of the qualifications that they were really looking for. And you attempt to try and learn all you need to learn to do that thesis and that project and so on. But no, I've always been playing catch up in terms of knowing enough for the given area that I'm doing. So I did a master's that was basically in, in a Roman history type topics. So at that point, I did quite a lot of Latin and a lot of Roman history. But then I did this Aegean prehistory type PhD. So likewise, a whole learning curve in that area. And during that time, I decided that a lot of archaeological science was a lot more interesting in many ways and underdeveloped. And that became a, just a sideline a project article book I wrote um, when I was a graduate student. But if you were to say, and where's your formal training in physics? The answer is, I don't have any. And um, these are things you've taught yourself and, and basically demonstrated you're supposedly competent by virtue of publishing and leading journals. Yeah, I can see definitely where that would be very hard as a young student to try to be competent enough. Well, so in a sense, I'm off, it's a combination of both. Um, it's good, and, and, and but equally makes you a bit jealous. I mean, um, graduate students that we have here, they get um, support and funding if they're lucky enough to get in at Cornell or other equivalent universities. And they get several years of intense coursework, which of course seems like a burden, but they get lots of training and lots of techniques and including interdisciplinary ones if they wish to go that way. So at various times, I always think, well, I wish I'd had all of that. That would have been great. I'd have actually, you know, X, Y, and Z. But um, I also am a strong advocate. And so far, no one's listened to me in, in faculty meetings or other forums I've had a chance to discuss. I think one of the big weaknesses of a lot of our graduate training in a whole range of these fields, particularly the US model, is so structured and takes so long. By the time people finish, they've lost the excitement of youth and the ability to be really inventive. And, you know, people have those ideas and want to do really different things in their, you know, 20s, early 30s. But we often intend to produce PhD students out of US model when they're already well into their 30s by the time they've finished. And... I think they've um, used up a lot of the time when they would have been just really prepared to take a, a risk. Something just wouldn't even work out, but they'd at least spend six months trying to find out. And interesting. That's that's an interesting point that you raised, because I often complain about how long the period of graduate study is in the U.S. And it's actually one thing that I find myself, since I've been living in Europe this past year, have been discussing because a lot of people will say, you know, what comes next? What happens if you try to do the Ph.D.? Can you even do that? And I find it's I'm not sure. I mean, is it shorter to do a Ph.D. down in Australia? The Australian models more still like the English model, and the English model and the European models are not that far apart. Of course, the negative side is blamed on funding. You only get you only get three or four years funding maximum in the UK um, European model, and you've got to get on and finish. You often you, you start already with a thesis project often given to you rather than you have to like find your own. And although now the move is mainly to try and do a one-year master's before you start. You still don't, it's still not required everywhere. And it certainly was not historically the model. You just went and just did a PhD. So it's perfectly possible. And you can find well-known figures in the classics field. And I'll fairly call out um, Ian Morris at Stanford as a, a, for instance, who goes through the entire system in the UK, undergraduate and then PhD at Cambridge, has a PhD, 
and is remarkably young in mid-20s by the time you finish this stage. And that's just not possible in the US model. But of course, he would probably say the same as me. You get to that point wonderfully untrained in everything because you haven't done years of coursework and graduate seminars and you haven't read all sorts of things. And that's the strength of the US model when it works well. You're an incredibly well-qualified person and ready to be a faculty member when you finish, assuming there's a job. If there's no job, of course, it seems like you've become highly qualified and relevant for something that doesn't exist, or at least I would say the British model, you're 25, you finished, it's not too late to start all over again and do something else. That's true. So it just seems like there's a degree of flexibility. Um, and it's, I guess, deciding which... It's hard to say how it's exactly come about. I mean, you can point out that the American educational system, particularly in humanities classics, was strongly based around the German model, and that may reflect a little bit of the understanding, but it more has to do with the nature of the funding and just how it's grown up as an overall discipline. So in Europe broadly, it's the state that provides a a limited amount of support towards education, both undergraduate and graduate level. Thus, it's nowhere near enough. So it's a case of trying to maximize the little bits available and yet get things to happen. And a lot of people part-time or come back and do this as mature adults. So when I taught um, in the UK, first many years I was teaching, I was often one of the younger people in the class, even though I was meant to be the teacher because you know the people were doing this as a mature age, hobby interest, come back to it and doing part-time degrees. US model, it's strictly with rare exceptions, straight from school. It's this sort of semi-professional model in which it takes a lot longer as well, but it's supported by, well, supported, it's unaffordably backed by parents and loans and things in a sort of unsustainable way. And then the graduate end, it's highly selective to get into the graduate school because effectively it's funded via the university. Having got in, you're almost given this apprenticeship and role. So it's that they're, they're aiming totally different ways. One is sort of paying to train you to become like them the only question is whether there's a space any longer for like them because the world is changing the other one is giving you a bit of state backing to try and make something of yourself and you really have to try and maximize everything you can before the money runs out oh man ah that's it's it's such an insane system and an insane world right the only exceptions are in in Europe now, there is this amazing funding model, the European Research Council, ERC, um, that they created under the Horizon scheme, where there, if a PI applies for a project, which could be on anything, it's a sort of blue skies model, there are no um, government things as to what it has to be about. So it can include Greek statuary, for example, in fact, there's been one, and so on. If one of those happens and then the PI says, oh, I want to have two or three PhD students working on topic A and topic B and topic C, they advertise them, people apply for them, then you can have a a fully funded, good PhD on something within a bigger project. And that's the almost perfect solution because it's exciting research because it's been selected as an interesting project. You're in a team, so you get the whole collective thing. But you get properly supported as well, because these are grants that pay, you know, one and a half to two and a half million euros. So it's not like that's probably the one perfect thing in the world. At the moment. Everything else is, seems to compromise from different directions. That's true. I often harp on about how the state of things, there should be solutions out there where we can improve the state of things. But I just don't know how long it will take. But one thing that popped into my mind, though, right before we, we got talking about the funding systems that I did want to come back to is 
even though you have a lot of topics you're interested in, do you have a favorite or do you feel, no, 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 you shouldn't pick like a favorite topic because you want to dedicate time to all of them? Well, my intellectual bias or weakness is undoubtedly the fact that uh, I would be criticized by many as being a little bit too much of a positivist, meaning I sort of like to sometimes achieve answers on things rather than it's just a game where you display cleverness for 15 minutes and then sit down and somehow that's achieved the goal just by being erudite and maybe you know to use the trendy jargon you've created affordances but nobody quite knows what the affordances lead to as opposed to you in some sense um believe you progress on finding topics where you think you could make some actual concrete progress always appealed to me more than just trying to argue some slightly different version of a you know a theoretical paradigm or something like that and then I guess when you start off, you're naive, you just pick things that interest you. And as you get a little bit further on, you start to think, well, life's short and so on. And it would be nice to at least be doing something that has some relevance or interest to somebody other than yourself. So I guess that would be why, particularly in the last um, while, I've done more things around the climate environment topic, because clearly what the world, or at least a lot of the world, is interested in now. And the past seems to provide an amazing laboratory or sort of historical experiment of how have humans coped with climate change in the past, perhaps not climate change particularly caused by humans, but still there's been major episodes of climate change and environmental change of various sorts, ranging from huge volcanic eruptions happening that have affected things through to major changes in you know, temperature or precipitation regime. And what types of changes really seem to create history because if you look in the popular newspapers and media you're forever reading an article which has claimed that some bunch of scientists who are always sort of you know seen as in white coat things have found something and and that explains some major historical change now and inevitably you think well climate changes all the time we know that now because it's been changing a lot just in the last couple of decades everything doesn't just sort of collapse like that because of it it causes all sorts of problems and it creates new um, challenges but humans are very good at being resilient in many ways and very good at trying to find solutions and others you know often contradictory solutions and that's part of the problem groups don't even agree on what they want to do so how do you find ways of making climate actually apparently relevant to history or or not so that strikes me as a real contribution that archaeology ancient history you know classics and broadly can make and if we think about the ancient classical world the so-called Roman warm period is seemingly as unusually productive, economically positive period in quite a bit of Europe and the Mediterranean. And it does link with what's clearly a period of sustained, stable um, climate, which is unlike many of the centuries before or afterwards. That wasn't recognized for quite a while, but you're not always looking for a disaster. Sometimes actually stable conditions can create growth. So that's one factor that one can try and look at to see different ways of looking at the past. And then we get to the end of that period and the so-called fall of Rome. And there's a book that came out a few years ago by Kyle Harper on, on this topic, which got quite a lot of media attention. It's a nice book. It's well-written, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, from the moment you, I saw the title and I've already seen Kyle give talk on this, my brain's going, well, the problem here is there's no such thing as the fall of Rome. And these sorts of things are very complicated. So if you're going to actually talk about change, it's how do you get change in major societies? What factors lead to sudden versus slow change? 
what do we mean by when we talk about a topic like that? And if you've had a society that's been pretty successful for a fairly long period of time, arguably it then becomes more rigid and more susceptible to what seems like a major shift because its very success has almost engendered a sort of status quo rather than a continuing flexibility. Could we look at some of our ancient societies that we know well as examples of that? And that's why we seem to then feel there's a real paradigm shift that happens at certain times. And how does archaeology and, and other sources of evidence that we have work? And one of the things I've work with is tree rings and we can actually start to try and use those to see can we observe climate shift that occurs in the late Roman period and what type of evidence exists. That's so incredible. I mean, I've heard people say, they say that the past holds answers for the future. And I know that there's a bunch of different specializations, smaller ones within, even down to like ancient urban planning. And I know climate is is one of those specializations, but I think when sort of confronting a, a more contemporary conversation with someone who says, oh, come on, you can't tell me that looking in the past will actually help us how to solve these, these issues that are existential to us. Well, in general terms, it's easy to sort of say, yes, but. However, that's where I'd say um, modern scientific techniques have really started to change it a little bit. So people were interested in climate in the past. So back in the early part of the 20th century, um, there was a whole movement which was sort of looking at geography and where civilizations were versus early ideas of climate and change. And today would even largely describe quite a bit of this literature as fairly sort of racist in sort of um, basis. But it was trying to spot that, you know, some areas had deserts and some this and how that did or didn't seem to lead to different types of civilization. But it was very general. The huge, huge change is using techniques like dendrochronology, but also other approaches that have now started to come in using spilliathems and ice cores and things, one can realistically start trying to understand what was going on in terms of climate or environmental parameters or atmospheric chemistry at a, an annual or even sub-annual scale hundreds or even a few thousand years ago. So one's not arguing about the fact that it seems that something happens around about so-and-so, it's that there's an enormous volcanic eruption that happens in 43 BC, and how does that or does that not affect other things that happened just then? And it means that all of that effort put in together historical chronologies and trying to understand some of the relationships that exist can be brought to bear against this rather than just sort of saying, oh, well, it all happened in the first century BC, but we have no idea when, which leaves everything completely always open for discussion as to you blame this thing or you blame that. It both rules out a number of old types of easy hypotheses because you discover things don't really match up when you look at it in close detail. But it also means that suddenly, if you've got records like the Nileometer, which tells you about floods in the Nile, and you actually have really accurately dated records of major past volcanism, can you start to put these together to suddenly say, hold on a minute, there's a period here of a few years where something really unusual happens that has not happened for hundreds of years before or afterwards. And then there's the set of historical circumstances. Is this, a, for instance, where we can say this really links together? And if it happened today, if we were to observe this type of phenomenon occurring, where would we be? So, I mean, the normal thing with climate, she says, it, you know, it changes all the time. And that's true, even though we'd say there are certain trends, like it's been getting warmer for the last 30 years. But it goes like this, maybe in a particular direction. 
But at various times, you get repeated extremes happening right next to each other. And so Peter Garnsey um, is perhaps the best known ancient historian who looked at this in his book on famine and food supply in, in the Greco-Roman world. You expect as a farmer in traditional circumstances that your crop will fail regularly. And you can calculate for various crops how often that will be. But we know that if you're living around Attica, for example, it's a relatively dry part of the world, it's going to be a drought a certain number of years out of a particular number. And he calculated that maybe about one in 10 years, the wheat harvest is going to be in trouble. And for barley, which is a much hardier crop, it's much rarer. It's, it's sort of you know, a couple of times a century you're in trouble. But every now and again, you actually have the rare situation where things are really bad and suddenly you have two such bad years in a row. And yet all the traditional Mediterranean farmers, both according to classical sources, but also just interviews with people from the 19th and 20th century, they all planned around one bad year. If you get two bad years in a row or three, that breaks all of the models they did. They don't store enough olive oil. They don't have enough seed. You basically, you're in starvation situation. So he made the argument that you were always under some form of subsistence stress, but actually famines, like real crisis with a capital C, are very rare. But when they do occur, then it's going to be really meaningful. Mm. And then it's going to depend on your type of government. This is the standard anthropological argument that Marta sends credited with the fact that you don't have famines and democracies because when people vote, the government has to try and solve the problem. Whereas in your dictatorship, happened in the early years of the Soviet Union, you have massive famines because that's not the concern. But if the world goes totally against you and you have one of these back-to-back -back type of disasters, even the best democracy may suddenly not have a solution for the problem. And has this happened? Occasionally it does. So we know that in the very early 17th century in central Turkey, there are a couple of years where extremely dry circumstances happen. And this is the time when the so-called Chilele Rebellion happened against the Ottoman Empire. It nearly brought the world's most powerful then military political force down because there was this huge peasant rebellion, starvation, tax broke down because of things. So it didn't quite fail, but it got awfully close to failing. And that happened because basically there are two or three years in a row of remarkable drought happened. Droughts are regular in Central Anatolia, but not like year after year. Wow. And now, and now I mean, I think... All of that is super interesting, but I want to say that the one thing that definitely stuck in my mind that I that I really want to ask you now is because you brought it up, especially regarding volcanic eruptions. Now, I know everyone likes to talk about Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii. Well, I'm saying, okay, I don't care about Pompeii right now in the context <laughs> of this conversation. What I care about and what I believe, if, if I remember it correctly, that you like some of the earlier periods anyway, is the eruption at ancient Thera, for those who don't know what that is, that's ancient Santorini. We had this nice big volcano, and it blew everything out of the middle, which is why Santorini is now shaped sort of in the moon shape it is. So in sort of like prehistoric part of the Aegean, have there been any really cool finds, especially in, you know, the areas you're studying with volcanic eruptions? That's something I don't get to hear about, so I'm very excited to be able to ask. Well, I mean, it's often called the Pompeii of the Aegean. So, I mean, yes, Athera is this amazing um, situation, and there's this extraordinary buried town, which is called Akrotiria, after the name of the modern village. It's near, which you can go visit, and it's incredible roof and things has been built over it. And there's about, believed to be about 20 hectares or so of um, ancient city there, which a couple of hectares have been excavated, and these wall paintings have been found that um, are displayed 
National Museum of Athens, incredible art, remarkably few precious finds, and so far basically no skeletons. So unlike Pompeii, it would appear that the population fled. So whether they made it away or whether there's a population that got killed at the harbour edge trying to escape, which did actually sort of happen a little bit Herculaneum, or whether some other thing else yet to be found out. But, you know, where is all the jewellery and the gold and things? Presumably with those people. But what they left behind, particularly the wall paintings, is the basis of 99% of what we know about Aegean Bronze Age art. Totally transformed our thinking because you get little fragments and it's amazing. But when you suddenly have a whole wall and you're just going, this is like the Renaissance, only it's 2,500 years or whatever old. It's, it's, that's extraordinary. And work I mean, continues. Um, there's been current excavations on the island of Theresia, which is one of the other little islands in the ring where material from the late Neolithic through early Bronze Age has been found. So yes, it remains perhaps one of the most cool eighth, ninth, whatever wonders of the world that we'll have. And the only debate continues to be exactly when did it happen. And it used to be confidently dated 1500. Then radiocarbon and other evidence suggested it dated earlier. And hundreds of people have written articles and tried to improve and, and, and keep refining that. That's one I tried as, uh, as, as a student and, and, and wrote something back early in my career on and have written things every few years. It's fair to say we don't yet have a definitive answer, although a paper published this year, I would say I think you can make an incredibly strong case that we can at least delimit that it definitely occurred during what's called the Second Intermediate Period and not in the New Kingdom of Egypt. And that will seem like a very esoteric statement to make, but it was everybody regarded the eruption occurred during the New Kingdom, which is the period when Egypt has built an empire in Western Asia. And we know some of the pharaohs, uh, Moses III and people like this. And it was seen that the first period of the Aegean palace, so-called new palaces in Crete, they correlated with this New Kingdom period and even the names that went against each other. However, it would seem, based on the evidence at Akrotiri and both the archaeology, but particularly the um, evidence from radiocarbon dating, that probably the eruption occurred in the earlier period, which is called the Second Intermediate Period. That name alone tells you that we don't know much, much about it because it's sort of between things. There's a middle kingdom, there's a new kingdom, and there's this intermediate period. And that's a time when the central government broke down. The northern part of Egypt was under the control of a Canaanite group we call the Hyksos, which link with Lebanon, Israel, sort of part of the world today. And that's got probably real importance for the Aegean associations. So this is the group that probably invented the alphabet, and this probably has more than a little bit of relevance for the Aegean. It links with some of the gods' religion. So this is probably a really culturally significant thing. And the book now, several decades ago now, Martin Bernal, Black Athena, he was wrong about any number of things in detail, but on the other hand, had a, a really quite a gift for spotting trends and, and, and bigger picture things. He identified that Thera and the date of it was really important to try and understand the history of Western Asia and how this all went together. And he particularly realized that if you had an earlier date, this maybe did change how we could understand which groups talked to each other and how the Aegean did or didn't link with Western Asia, and particularly the Canaanite part of the world versus Egypt. And if the second intermediate period is the period that goes with the eruption and goes with the shaft graves at Mycenae and goes with the first palace period, near palace period in Crete, it sort of means Bernal wasn't so far off the money at suggesting that we have been putting the wrong culture history together for the last 200 years. 
and that then needs further work and detail and, and so on. But up till now, the scholarly community has simply rejected this is not correct or not a good idea, and it's never been pursued. And at some point, if the date can ever be established, and if it does turn out that it's before about 1560, and thus it actually is in the second immediate period, and it's not as was thought 1500 or 1510 or 1520 or something was in the New Kingdom and, and as everyone's thought since Sir Arthur Evans around 1900, that probably would be the biggest revolution in GN prehistory for 150 years of thinking. And it would demonstrate that academics have to occasionally throw everything up in the air and start again, rather than just always just saying, well, we work within the orthodox model. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Although it makes me think that have you heard of or possibly read Wilbur Smith's River God, the novel of ancient Egypt? I know the name. I'm not I'm not going to pretend I've read it. <laughs> okay, because it was the first book in a series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember that one of the sequel books, I think it was the fourth, fifth, whatever. So basically, I'll, I'll give a short synopsis, both for you and for the audience who don't know this book. His novel starts at the beginning or right before the second intermediate period starts, so right before the Hyksos invasion. But then it basically chronicles your main character who's kind of a a slave and he works for Pharaoh. And so it chronicles their flight down the cataracts out of Egypt when the Hyksos come in and take over. And then the subsequent books kind of, there's a lot of time skipping, but it's essentially when the Egyptians come back into power and then Hyksos are sort of driven away, but they're still kind of in the north. But essentially, the fourth or fifth, whatever book that is, he cleverly imagines one of the Egyptian princesses being shipped to the Minoans to marry a Minoan prince. And it's conveniently on Santorini. And then he sort of imagines the volcanic eruption. The dating the dating's going to push it, but obviously the idea of intermarriage and things is not so far-fetched because we know the Egyptian um, royal court had women from other places. The Egyptians famously, because they regarded themselves as the number one civilization, they did not export outwards, but they accepted inwards. So we know of various royal marriages into the Egyptian court. And at the site of Tel el-Dabar in the Nile Delta, there's a major palace site there, built probably in the second intermediate period, there's debate over exactly when it was built, which has wall paintings, which are strongly Aegean in style. And this has been suggested since the 1990s when their first fragments were found. This could well be Aegean artists doing this, because they're certainly copying, if not Aegean artists. And it was even suggested back then this could be in the context of some form of dynastic linkage or diplomatic event. The New Kingdom person marrying on Santorini would probably be tricky if the dating is anywhere near where we currently think it is because it's uh, blown up at that point. <laughs> yeah. You know, what you were saying, it just struck such a chord because I was like, oh my gosh, then that, that means that not only it might Bernal have been a bit closer, but this author somehow also, I mean, he really sort of played around with his timelines. Obviously, the the whole issued of a Santorini, but more particularly the Hyksos coming into Egypt and occupying it, is also inherently linked with the biblical narrative of Exodus and and how this works. And there's been years of people attempting to try and either explain um, Moses in terms of this period or others, but the beginnings of, you know, one God theology versus others may well have connections with 
this period, and that, that that's been much disputed as to whether you can or cannot link that. So yeah, people try and create a bigger history on this because clearly it was a traumatic event for the Egyptians because we have a stealer where at the beginning of um, Ahmed's reigns, he's the first pharaoh of the new kingdom, which he sort of describes himself rebuilding the land from a complete destruction from you know, a tempest and the tombs and the ancestors being opened and things. So this previous period somehow has to be sort of written off. Hapshepsut, who's the mother of Tuthmose III and her funerary temple, she has a, a history of Egypt recorded, but the period of the Hyksos is just entirely excised from that history. It doesn't exist anymore. So the New Kingdom actively fails to remember the Hyksos to the point of Damnatio Memoriae territory. So this was clearly a, a problem for the Egyptians because didn't marry with their whole tradition of the one unified state that had gone on forever. Mm. So I'm curious because the you know the book played around with timelines just like we're still trying to figure out what the real timelines are. There have been a lot of let's just to be kinder to them we'll call them interesting media adaptations and representations of different events in history including volcanic eruptions but is there any one today that was made that you think was done pretty well, like respectfully, or honestly, do you just sort of cringe every time you watch anything that has a volcanic eruption and just kind of go, oh, oh dear, oh dear? <laughs> I think volcanic eruptions tend to be a bad one because there's that desperate desire and need to make it seem to be even more overwhelmingly disastrous than it than it would have been, given being anywhere near a really big volcanic eruption is pretty horrendous to start with, but. It's like most of the sort of climate change catastrophe films of a few years ago. It has to happen within days. It can't even just happen within a few decades. You know, it has to all be condensed and dramatized. So probably I would say none of those would be my favorites. I mean, I love historical type drama, TV, film, and, and it can be wacky. I mean, for example, I think Britannia is just brilliant. If you've watched Britannia, I mean, it's, it's as ahistorical as it can come, but it's brilliant. But uh, it's not pretending to sort of model a, a real event, volcano style or, or tsunami style, where I think typically you tend to more find yourself criticizing the obvious facts that are wrong and the physics that's wrong. Whereas if it's just like, were Druids real, as in like really real, I'm more happy to accept that because that's just a suspension of disbelief. Oh, that's great. Although actually, no, that I should have been asking you, not just for your take on, on ancient adaptations, but as someone who does actually study climate, so you you are invested in this. I mean, what did we think of a film like 2012 when the world was ending? Yeah, why is it that we like to shove these things forward? I mean, is it just because you need to fit it into like a two-hour film? Or is this just a bad film trope where you're like, oh, okay, apocalypse now, blah, 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 end of the world, let's shove it into a two-hour film and that's that. Or is it actually a cool topic we should be trying to portray, but maybe we rethink how we do it? So, okay, well, what if we do a series and then we can show development or something? Definitely, I think it works better. It would be a better series thing. But in some ways, there is an interesting tradition because if you think back not very many years, we had endless dystopian type future film, which all assumed that the world had effectively destroyed itself, usually nuclear war rather than climate change. And you'd have some humans living in little, you know, ruined things on the ground and various machines or whatever flying around uh, patrolling it and, and making life miserable, terminator territory. 
now that increasingly, I guess, 50% of the public realize that if we don't start doing something fairly soon, there are going to be major changes through climate change. And we can see that you know, migration and people trying to flee you know, unviable and non-economic situations really is changing the world. In some ways, I guess there's been a bit of a shift because maybe these dystopian things seem a little bit too real. So I guess that's the challenge for filmmakers is how to both make it compelling and requires interest, but you have to actually make it still not too real because I don't think people want to watch a documentary. And I think that's now the challenge. And there's that tendency, therefore, to either make it dramatic like it's going to happen tomorrow and therefore some hero figure, Tom Cruise star, can come along and prevent it and therefore it'll be okay. Whereas if it's more a case of saying you'll be getting a slippery slide over 50 years that's going to make life unlivable as your parents or grandparents knew, harder to sell was a happy thing. I mean, that, that, that probably only can turn out to be one of those art house European depressing type numbers. I mean, we do have so many things that, yeah, that they are nuclear war. But, you know, the one that I will say, I always point to that, that I rather enjoyed, at least the first film, I know it's a series, The Maze Runner. Because that is not, you know, we blew ourselves to smithereens and then suddenly we had to do like a Hunger Games type of, we, we, we rebuilt after war. Yeah. But no, it was, you know, it was quite clever actually. I was like, oh, a solar flare. Okay, it creates a virus. Mm, and then they turn into like weird zombie things. So that's a little <laughs> unbelievable. But this idea that it's still climate-based, you know, the, for spoilers, when they do sort of escape the maze in the first novel, it's like, this wasteland desert and it's yeah, it's really depressing but i do enjoy how it's climate based because i think there's a lot of comparisons made to like a divergent type thing but again yeah it's a wasteland because they blew themselves to bits so find that yeah we do like our dystopian things but a lot are definitely not climate but then it's also very impersonal because you don't actually talk about the eight billion people that therefore died and you don't just so all of these things tend to impersonalize greatly and that don't really dwell on the, the small tragedies that any of these changes occur and, and, and individuals and then many, many, many individuals. Mm, true. I, it's so interesting and I love seeing this trend and I, and I hope that we find a way to keep making interesting pieces of media that, yeah, kind of avoid the hyper-realism that will remind us of our current calamities. <laughs> but they do hit on interesting points, which is, I think, why we still sort of retain an interest in them or why people still make similar things. Yeah, no, I agree. They do need to change. So anyway, I have three last questions that usually end the interview portion of okay. the podcast. And so the first one, and this can either be from your undergrad or graduate experience although i know in australia they do it differently was there some kind of office hours thing in australia no in the sense of you didn't get assigned a, a tutor or a particular person in the same way and we didn't have like a director of undergraduate studies because you weren't belonging to a thing until you actually enrolled in in an honors course when you did but no you did if you did honors you did have a supervisor and you did could go along and have a chat. And I would agree, usually I think that's one of the defining moments that students decide that they love it because they do enjoy having somebody to talk to that is interested in what they do and helps direct or challenge them to find things. And I mean, I guess I'd say in my own experience, both as the teacher side and the student side, going on something like an archaeological field project is the sort of like a condensed version of this you actually get to have some dinner conversations with experts, but there's under no pressure because they're just having their 
Zublaki on the other side of the table, but happy to answer questions and it's fascinating. So for any of these experiences, it can be well outside of school, or if you would like, you can answer this from your position as a professor at an American institution that does presumably do office hours. Do you have a memory of a favorite conversation or experience with a mentor, a student, someone that just struck you as being one of those moments where it's really all about the the mentorship that comes with being able to go talk to someone or talking to someone? I think there are a number. I guess I would say I certainly remember a couple of ones where you tend to be challenged. I can think of one particular graduate student who happily showed up and proceeded to explain in a very friendly and polite way why she thought the whole article I'd written was entirely wrong. And of course, it was completely charming. And of course, by the end of it, you're thinking, this student's really good. I, I, I'm Obviously, I now need to take a big interest here because this is really, really cool. But it really went for it. And I guess there's a not that common. People tend to be um, either polite or they just don't even want to do it because they're sort of afraid they're going to get jumped on. Wow. I mean, that's really cool. I've never heard of that actually so that's so it's so interesting well we're, we're still we're still working together as colleagues so we have we've stayed friends <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad that there's a happy ending there but also one i want to just admire the guts on this person this individual and two that's really cool because can they teach me how to respectfully wonderfully and very friendly go in and, and tell someone that i believe their work is incorrect or flawed so props to this person well, being incorrect or flawed doesn't, of course, mean it's worthless. It just means that we now need to progress and move on from that to do something slightly better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, that's like the ultimate compliment for taking constructive criticism and saying, ah, oh, okay, cool, we can improve. And the last question really is now, as, from your perspective as a professor who has undergrad and grad students and has office, host office hours yourself, if you had to give like a one-minute elevator pitch for why students should come to office hours, what would you say? It's the easiest way to actually pass courses, write essays that are going to get the extra sort of, you know, plus on the B or the A or the whatever, because professors are invariably keen to try and pass on information, tell you what they're interested in, why they like or don't like certain things. And by not asking, you just have to guess rather than invariably they're quite keen to do it only I cannot be the only person who is not overwhelmed often when you you know tell a class that I'll be available at this time to meet anybody who wants to book an appointment three or four enthusiastic ones of course do and then you think well where where, where are the rest of them oh man it was a great way to get to know my professors as well so definitely I always agree with with the idea and the concept of office hours and I think they're super important so anyway the last thing that I ask all of my guests to do on the show is to read the beautiful poem Ozymandias by one Percy Shelley and after you've read it if you could just you know give us your quick thoughts on what do you think is the enduring power of this poem? Why do people still come back to it and cite it as one of their favorites? And does it speak to you in any way? Okay, I will read it first then in that case. <laughs> Get ready to play your way through the ancient world at Hit Points in History, a virtual Gaming conference connecting academics, professionals, and gamers, regardless of character level.
Join us on March 4th and 5th as we explore the open world of ArcuGaming through live streams, workshops, and collaborative gaming events. Presenters include Andrew Reinhardt, Betty Robertson, Kara Cooney, and others. To find out more, submit a presentation proposal, or buy tickets, head over to hitpointscon.com. Link in the show notes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it sculpted a well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my work, see mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Well, I like it because, one, I've actually worked in a desert area in Jordan, so it's, it's somewhat similar in terms of the concept and, 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 and area and, and, and things. It has real contemporary relevance in terms of, you know, ISIS's attempts to destroy history and how you end up with relics. And both the relic of the past itself becomes both disembodied and, you know, it's just a thing sitting there as described here. But at the same point, of course, it proves how hard it is to ruin and actually destroy such a past, but it ends up being broken and disparate. And it's only going to be by trying to put it all together that you succeed in doing what Shelley says you can't do, which is, you know, nothing beside remains. Invariably, huge amounts remains around all such ruins and relics, but 
you have to actually interpret and and love and get to know them to be able to try and, and bring something back to life. And that being back to life is the traveler because you can never go back to that past. It's it's what you recreate yourself by meeting it and discussing it and engaging with it. So in a way, I'd say it's uh, the world is more um, uplifting and, and positive than the poem in a way is the slightly more depressing version of, of what can be done. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I love this poem for so many reasons. It's my favorite poem ever. And I love it because it's versatile. It's because everyone can see something so different because you can pull on your area of expertise or your background or something. And I always find that no matter what background or or what you're into, you can always find something within it to relate to, which is what I think makes it so powerful. And for me, it's also sort of a political statement by Shelley. It's a memento mori of sorts. Yeah, definitely. And when considering it like that, this memento mori, the last question I love to ask every podcast guest is if we take a moment to consider and just think about our contemporary society, our modern world, do we have like a modern Ozymandias thing? Like, do we have something that we think is monumental, that is amazing, that is avant-garde and that realistically we're going to look back and just say, you know, what, what, what were we thinking? What is this? Ugh, what a terrible idea. Clearly, um, humans have built monuments as early as they've been building anything. So you could say there's a very human thing to try and create permanence when the world's not permanent. But I suppose in some ways you could say the main thing that really comes to my mind is where does social media fit into this? So people spend their lives now curating carefully web pages, Facebook. Obviously, nobody does uh, Twitter anymore because uh, look what happened there. But we create these things and yet they're all they all most immediately become partly these relics and partial things so it's that human need to try and create meaning when the world doesn't seem to actually have a lot so I think that's how I see that this poem fits nicely into that question which is sort of pretty much um, fundamental one human existence Okay, I kind of lied because actually I thought of one extra question for you just because of your areas of expertise, which is, well, since you do spend some time thinking about trees, are trees the most monumental thing we have since they live for hundreds of years? And Well, the right trees live for thousands of years. So bristlecone pines can live for several thousand years and, and cowries in New Zealand can live for a couple of thousand. Sequoias, when not being burnt down in California, can live for a couple of thousand years. They are probably the most awesome um, living thing in many ways on the planet. And the failure to extract as much information and memory out of them as possible seems a tragedy. And to not preserve them seems a tragedy. After all, since the beginning of the Holocene, so farming type period, we've lost at least half the forest area or more of the world. So that's an ongoing environmental catastrophe that we should try and remedy and the most obvious one point to is the Amazon, where we have one still semi-intact rainforest left on the planet. Our inability to at least save that has to speak poorly to about us. So maybe we should just be planting a bunch of trees that have the ability to last thousands of years instead of building statues that will crumble in a couple <laughs> hundred, well, perhaps. <laughs> there would be worse things to do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's been such a pleasure. And oh, yeah. where can people find you if they want to follow your work? 
I'm going to admit to the uh, being a social media not a, a avoider, but uh, I'm not a I'm not an Insta, Twitter, etc. person. But if you look my name up, you'll find that there's web pages at Cornell, and my lab at Cornell has a website, and there's information and can um, be contacted. So that was that's what I would say. But uh, I'm afraid no, I'm not busily tweeting every day. That's fine. I mean, it's going to implode anyway. So it's a good thing you're just not on there. So you won't lose anything. Well, what we will do, though, is we will link your website and to your faculty profile. So if people want to look at your interests, if they want to contact you, if they maybe want to work with you on some of these really cool sure. things, uh, I will let people do that. So once again, thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. And enjoy doing it, Lexi. Thank you very much. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.